Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number nine of Off the Block Swimming Podcast. Thank you all for clicking on and downloading our show today, wherever you're listening. I'm your host, Robbie Cox. Now, as we will be doing every Wednesday, today we head across the other side of the world and talk with one of the most consistent performers for Team GB and England in the last decade, Commonwealth Games gold medalist, Amy Wilmot. Had a great chat with Amy last week on Zoom about her dad, who was also an Olympian in his own right, her amazing career so far with all the lessons learned along the way, the 2012 London Olympics experience at home for her, and of course, the gold medal winning performance from the 2018 Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast. So settle in, get comfy, and get ready for a great chat as episode number nine with Amy Wilmot starts... No. Away they go. No problems with the start. There is two 100 in the second in it. Gary Hall Jr., the extrovert, and Ian Thorpe battling it out down the pool. Thorpe is starting to go away from him. Oh, he's blowing him away now. Thorpe's gone more than a metre on Van der Noten's hand. But the signature of all eyes is the great Phantom Butterfly, Susie O'Neill. He's coming back. Oh, he surely can't do it to him again. Chavis in the white hats, Dots in the black hats, and that's his bullets. I cannot believe he's done that. Thorpe to Thorpe. Thorpe to the hall. Thorpe goes in. Australia win. Joining me today on the show, or should I say tonight for me, uh, from across the world in the UK, is a two-time Olympian. She's a Commonwealth Games gold medalist from 2018 on the Gold Coast and is one of the most consistent performers on Team GB and England in the last decade. It is a massive welcome to Off the Block Swimming Podcast to Amy Wilmot. Amy, how are you going, mate? I'm good, thanks. Not too bad. As I said, lunchtime over here. So yeah, a little bit of time difference, I suppose. Yeah, a little bit of time. Now, I know you trained this morning and we we're just talking about how it's, you know, slowly getting back into it. So how was that session for you? Yeah, not too bad. Um, just a little bit of kick, nothing too taxing. Um, we're just kind of building up nice and slowly, nice and steady. I guess we've only got, as you say, like 90 minutes a day trying to split the athletes across all the different little sessions. So yeah, we're getting there. Um, and it's nice to kind of get back in slowly rather than just kind of get in and, and hit the ground running. Mm. How have you been, you know, affected by COVID-19? I mean, everyone's affected differently, depends on where you are, depends on how you're affected. Some people have been in for a long time. I know you were just saying it's only been about three weeks or so or four weeks that you've been back in. So how have you managed, say, the past three or four months? Um, at first, it was really difficult. I think probably like most athletes, you kind of have this plan and you have this goal that you've been working towards. And then one day the trials are disappearing and then the next day the Olympics are gone and you think, oh, well, what, what am I doing now? And that's kind of everything that I was preparing for, everything I was working for, even kind of out of the pool, everything else I'd put on a back burner and I was just focusing on training, training, training. So to kind of have all of that one day and then not the next, it was really tough for me. And I'm one of these people that likes to plan, likes to know what's going on and mm-hmm. have like a bit of a target and a focus. And for all of a sudden to not have that, um, I did really struggle at first, just kind of not knowing what I was going to do, not knowing how I was going to fill the days, and then kind of not knowing where my career was kind of going to go, um, kind of getting towards the end of it now. And I had planned that potentially Tokyo was maybe going to be towards the end of it. Was that going to be the end? And, and yeah, all of a sudden it was just not there anymore. So it was quite difficult to, to kind of digest that. 
um, and find something to do in the days rather than just obviously spending five or six hours at the pool. It was, what yeah. am I going to do now? So um, once I kind of got used to that and then I got into a bit of a routine, it wasn't too bad, just kind of ticking over day by day. But when we got told we could get back in, it was like a really nice feeling. And um, yeah, it was kind of gearing up to prepare to kind of dive in for the first time in like 14 weeks or whatever it was. How did you occupy your mind through that time? I mean, a lot of people did puzzles. I saw so many people doing puzzles. That's way too patient for me. I, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't do a puzzle. I'd go nuts. Um, reading books. I know I started thinking I should read more books and I started and then I put the book down and I never went back. So did you read any books? Like, how did you occupy your, uh, your time and your mind? Yeah, so I, I got the bike from my parents' house. I got a couple of jigsaws. We didn't do a single jigsaw during lockdown, <laughs> so we didn't really get around to that. Yeah. Um, but just trying to stay fit and active, I guess, at least once a day was something that I was like, right, pencil in, when am I going to do this like form of exercise, whether it was first thing on the morning or sort of after lunch. Um, and then around that, I was doing like a, a course online. So I was doing like a social media course. Um, I started to develop... My business a little bit more because um, I, I have a business called Wilmot Swim Skills. So I just kind of work with young swimmers, normally kind of face to face at the pool, a little bit of coaching. Um, obviously, all of a sudden, can't really do any of that. So it was how can I kind of engage online and, and reach out that way. So I ended up being quite busy and, and having something to focus on, which was quite nice. But yeah, to get back in the pool, it was kind of like, right, that's the priority now. Everything else can kind of juggle in around that. Now, I see in doing my research that you actually taught by mum and dad how to swim when you're first introduced to the water and your dad will get to in a moment and, and, and what he'd achieved in, in the water. But how much did you enjoy the water when you were younger, when you were first sort of getting introduced to it? I, I remember just absolutely loving it. I've always, I think I've always kind of must have been a water baby of some way or another. Um, I remember being on holiday and just kind of hanging my feet over the edge of the pool and there's videos of me and my mum and dad being like, stay away from the edge, get your armbands on before you're allowed in. And I think the first time I kind of just jumped in and, and went off on my own, I was on holiday. So for me, it's just kind of always been a thing that if you can be safe in the water, if you can have fun and, and just kind of enjoy it that way. And then little did I know that it would turn into kind of this career that I've had um, and having, I guess, my dad and my mum kind of introduced me to that. And it was just such a, like a fun experience for me. I just really, really enjoy being, being in the water. Your dad, uh, Stuart Wilmont, is actually an Olympian himself in his own right. Great swimmer, represented Great Britain in 1988, if my research is correct, in the LA Games. How much of that was a factor in, in you pursuing swimming, um, you know, as you got older? Obviously, I don't think he pushed you in that direction, but, you know, we all look to our parents and go, oh, you know, I'd, I'd love to sort of emulate that. How much of that was a, a factor for you? I think when I was really little, I didn't quite understand. I just knew that kind of my dad could swim and I guess that he was quite good at it. It was only really, I guess, when I was maybe sort of 10, 11, I just started doing like little competitions and you start to kind of understand what the Olympics is and how big of a deal it is and that it is, I guess, the pinnacle in our sport. And I was kind of swimming quite well and I loved racing and I hated losing. So I had that kind of gut instinct and that, that want to race and want to be a swimmer. And it was only really sort of, when the announcement came that the Olympics were going to be in London, I was thinking, actually, like, this is quite a big deal. And for what my dad's done to go to an Olympics must be quite a big deal. Mm. So to understand it sort of as I got a little bit older and really appreciate that what he'd done was what I was trying to then emulate, as you said, was, was like a nice 
thing to have him as a role model and as a support network and then to kind of realize that well if almost like if dad can do it then then I can do it and it was it just made it seem like a more realistic target because he'd been there and done that so if he'd done it like why couldn't I yeah now your dad actually you know now is your business partner as well with the with the Wilmot swim uh, skills as we talked about before um you do you know club visits swim clinics one-on-one coaching not as much at the moment because you're you're unable (laughs) to but that's what you were doing like what brought that about and and how much do you enjoy working with the junior swimmers so my dad used to actually coach me when I was young. So sort of the age of nine, 10, he was kind of my coach on poolside as well as dad at home. And at that age, you kind of think you know better than your parents. And it was kind of just that, that experience that, well, he obviously did know what he was talking about because when I look back, those fundamentals that he kind of instilled then sort of helped me with the rest of my career. So to, to have that relationship and him understand the coaching side as well as the swim side was quite interesting and then I went down and did my coaching qualifications and we kind of just like spoke a little bit about what he used to do back then and what we do now and the differences and it just kind of became something that we've always been really interested in and like my dad loves swimming just as much as I do and and he'll follow me all around the world to support me so it was like a nice thing to kind of think right well we can now work together and we can kind of give back to the youngsters coming through the sport and have that little bit of inspiration and obviously with him being male and me being female it's kind of like well you can both do it anyone can be an Olympian and Mm. it's just kind of down to how hard you work the talent the direction that you take it and and we just really enjoy kind of that side of it rather than necessarily kind of being on poolside it's the the smiles that you get and the oh thanks for coming like we really enjoyed it like I'm gonna go away and make the Olympics and it's kind of the the inspiration that we're able to kind of give it's really nice when someone kind of turns around and sort of says that to you. Well, you touch on it there. And for all of those guys and many other, you know, swimmers in the UK, youngsters coming up, you're those, that hero and that idol to them. For you when you were younger, who, who was your hero or idol that you looked up to and, and wanted to emulate? So when I was really young, when I was sort of 10, 11, I was pretty much a backstroke swimmer. I couldn't really swim butterfly. I couldn't get my arms out of the water at the same time. Um, was really like weak at front crawl swimming. So I was just always a backstroke swimmer. And at, at that age, I was like, who's the world record holder? Who's the best in the world? And I like, kind of doing a little bit of research. And there was obviously in Great Britain, there was Kate Sexton and, and Sarah Price and Karen Pickering. I was like, oh my gosh, these girls are amazing. Um, Lizzie Simmons was only a little bit older than me. And then... I was thinking at 10 years old, I was like, I'm going to break the world record. I'm going to be like Christina Regazzeggi at 16 and be this amazing swimmer. So kind of that, that they were my role models. And then obviously in-house having sort of that support network for my dad just kind of made the whole thing like even more exciting and, and enjoyable having those people to look, so, look up to. And as I guess I changed and developed a little bit, got a bit stronger and kind of medley swimming became my sort of thing. Um, and I was like, oh, I'm quite good at this. And everyone else hates it because it's quite hard. So I was like, I can do this. I can work hard and, and get stuck in. And then obviously at that age, kind of Hannah was um, sort of one of the people that I was thinking I'll aspire to be like her. She's going all around the world, swimming in this event, been to the Olympics, been to Commonwealth Games, won gold when I was at my first one, kind of having a bit of a nightmare. So she was kind of my sort of... Uh, role model growing up and I was kind of wanting to emulate her career and and be as successful as she had and kind of have such a long career like like Hannah's gone on to do. 
We'll get to your international career in a moment, but before we start there, you know, obviously as a youngster coming through, there were certain things that you needed to, to go through and learn from. And I ask a lot of people this, it could be, you know, your nutrition, it could be your prehab stuff, it could be um, nerves and competition, all that sort of stuff. What were some of the things as an age group swimmer that you went through that, you know, you now have overcome, but, you know, um, younger ones out there that are listening will sort of identify with. Yeah, so I, I was quite lucky in terms of like my attitude and my confidence when I was younger. I just remember getting behind the block and every time thinking, well, I don't want to lose. So regardless of what event it was, what stroke it was, like who I was racing, I just had this like natural confidence. And it was like, I love swimming. I know I work harder than pretty much everyone else in my squad. Probably most people my age at the time. Um, and that was kind of my like little comfort blanket. And then all of a sudden to not, win I guess was my first time at the age of 13 was thinking I'm gonna sec like I'm normally the one in backstroke is winning everything and then to not have that all of a sudden it was like oh am I as good as I think I am like I, how am I not winning like I always work hard I've always done this and it's kind of that like reality check that you go right well senior swimming is probably not going to be as exciting and as easy as this but I know I can work hard and I know I can kind of overcome those obstacles and I think at such a young age that gave me the sort of the understanding that things are probably not going to go my way all the time the rest of my career and at youth olympics was my first kind of experience of that and it was like how can i use that kind of upset to then kind of swim well in my next event and just that learning experience that even though you work the hardest and you try the hardest like things always don't go your way and just kind of understanding that at a young age definitely helped me from when everything went kind of belly up here and there through the rest of it that I had that experience to kind of reflect back on. Understanding that at a, an older age is very hard as well, yeah. given that like, <laughs> look at this year, for example, that, you know, things aren't always going to go our way and, and mm-hmm. things will, will change. That's for sure. 2010, you um, debut on the English team and then you head to Delhi for the Com games that you had the European champs in Budapest. Correct me if I'm wrong with these things. Um, <laughs> how did you find those experiences and, and what sort of lessons and we're always learning lessons and I'm sure you guys are the same. What lessons did you, did you take from those first, big experiences uh, I think I remember 2010 I remember Budapest and getting on the team and thinking it was going to be awesome and that I was going to like swim really well at being my first kind of senior international long course meet and I'd raced outside before at this time loads of our international meets were were open air so I'd raced at youth olympics and europeans and all, all of this had no roof so I thought well, it's exactly the same it's just a different group of competitors and I remember getting there just getting in and just swimming really rubbish and my 200 medley was bad my 400 medley was bad way off my times and just like totally flat and I couldn't understand why and I think knowing that yeah it was exactly the same but the environment was a bit different the pressure that I was putting on myself was a little bit different was something that I hadn't really prepared for and then I went to the um commie games later in the year in 2010 and yet again swam okay but didn't nothing really went my way so it was just like a massive learning experience in terms of going away for three or four weeks being away for such a long time having to race compete um wanting to compete well rather than just being like a kid just away fun racing loving it Mm -hmm. um and that kind of realization that i wanted to be successful as a senior swimmer rather than just like a kid who loved to swim was the year 2010 was the year where i realized that 
I had to kind of get that balance in order to perform and, and succeed. And those two trips kind of, I guess, gave me a lot of different learning experiences. And Delhi was a disaster in terms of the facilities, the pool. So for me to go away on that trip every now, every now and then when I'm away and the environment's not perfect, I'm like, well, it's never as bad as Delhi. Like I'll never <laughs> be in that situation again. So it's always a bonus, I suppose, from having that, that trip. I must admit, I've had, uh, what is it now, 53, 54 people on the podcast, and I have not had one good word about the Delhi game <laughs> in terms of facilities and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I'm glad you did get other lessons out of it rather than just yeah. an upset tummy. So at yeah, least, at least you got something away from it. <laughs> now, before we talk about London uh, and Olympics, and, and I want to ask you about what was it like qualifying for your first Olympic Games, following in dad's footsteps, especially in the 400 IM. Um, must have been a pretty big moment for you and your family. Yeah, it was really special. As I said, when I was like 11, I knew that the Olympics were coming to London. I was like, I have to be on that team. Like I wanted to be on that team. So from like being 12, 11, 12, every year I worked, I was like, oh, I'm getting a step closer to that. The Olympics is coming. The hype was getting bigger and the facilities were being built. And to then race at the trials in the Olympic pool, obviously being the first kind of swimmers in there, I was like, this is going to be really special. So my parents came to watch, my sister, my best friend, um, my aunt and uncle who live in London, my grandparents traveled across and it was kind of like a, like a big event to come watch me at the, the trials. And yeah. it was day one and the 400 IM is always day one. And I just remember thinking like, if I'm going to do this, it's going to be now, like there's no way I'm going to get it in four years. Like I want to do it now, like at home and be in London. And I knew exactly what time I had to swim. I knew exactly where I had to finish. So it was kind of, this is what you've got to do, get in, do it. And I remember hitting the wall, like turning around for the scoreboard and being like, yes, I've actually done it. Like I'm going to go to an Olympics. It's going to be at home and I'm swimming in the same event that, that my dad got to swim in. Yeah. Um, so as soon as that happened, I kind of give them a little like fist pump in the stands. It was like, right, where did you finish? Because now I'm going to try and finish better than that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's kind of where the next couple of months led. And it just was such a, like, a nice experience. And it was like dreams come true, but to kind of have my, my dad there at the trials and then watch me at the games, it was just like a really nice kind of moment, and especially for the family as well, because my mom feed me, my dad used to get up early in the morning, they'd spend all weekends at competitions. So to like finally kind of give back and see the enjoyable side of it was, was like a really nice feeling for me. Absolutely. I think sometimes that is something that's lost. I mean, and it is an individual sport and you guys definitely do a lot of the work, but I think sometimes, you know, when you guys make it, as you said, it's the parents, it's the supporters, it's everyone around. It's more of a, a team than people sometimes think uh, about it. Yeah. Now I, I've had Rebecca Adlington on last week. I've spoken to Hannah Miley, as you know, and they both say that, you know, 2012 London Games was insane in terms of the hype that came with it, um, you know, being home games, everyone wants to talk to you, people are, I think Rebecca was saying someone was filming her training session randomly and she's like, what are you, what are you training, what are you filming that for? No, there's no secrets here. Uh, how was the experience for you? I mean, we'll get to the swimming in a moment, so don't give the answers away in terms of your, your, your racing, but you know, what was the build-up like? and Were you ready for it, do you think? I know you always wanted to be there, but once you got there, did you think, God damn, I wasn't ready for this? Yeah, I don't think so. I think you watch it on the TV as a, as a kid like, and you aspire to be there and you like, kind of get the gist that it's a big deal and 
everyone's like, oh, to be, to go to the Olympics, to go to the Olympics. But then when you get there, you're like, hang on, this is like really special. Like you walk into the village and everyone's so friendly and everyone's there like to support you. And you're like, I don't even know who you are. Like, this is really strange that people are kind of like running around after you. Like, do you need anything? Do you need this? Is everything all right in your room? And you're like, yeah, it's fine. Like everything's good. And then you walk in the dining hall and it's like, you just feel totally lost. And there's all these like famous people and you're like, hang on, Novak Djokovic is like having his lunch. And I'm sat like four tables away. I was like, this is like the weirdest experience ever. Like just being like 19 and being a swimmer from Britain, like make it to an Olympic Games was like this surreal experience. And I guess I was so excited to race. I was just waiting and waiting and waiting for like day one to dive in and do my thing. And just like the anticipation, the build-up and the excitement is something that you do literally feel like it's like Christmas, like every day. Like you wake up and you're like, what, what can I find today? Like what's new? What, what's going to happen? Like who am I going to meet? Um, and it's just this really like insane, strange, cool environment that you think will be awesome, but it always surpasses your expectations. Like no matter where you are, even Rio was, was totally different in its, in its own right. And to have it like on home soil and everybody in Britain kind of be like tuning in to what you were doing. You'd like turn on the TV and you'd be like, Oh, they're talking about where I'm staying and like what's going on. And yeah, it was just this like awesome experience that like, it's just really difficult to kind of explain unless you've kind of been, been there and you've done it. What about your results in the pool? How do you look back on those? Yeah, so it was short and sweet for me. Um, I was day one, 400 IM, swam the heat, and that was it for the rest of the week. Um, not quick enough to make a relay team, not quick enough to make a 200 IM individual at the time. Um, so I knew that this was probably going to be like one swim for me and I had to get in and kind of give it my all. I'd swam pretty quick that year. Like I dropped down something, it was a 437 two or three to make the team so I knew I was swimming like pretty quick but I knew that that wouldn't be enough to kind of definitely secure a place in the final so I had to get in in the morning um, and just kind of give it like a a straight final basically for me Um, I remember walking out to the swim and kind of like Hannah was already in the pool Hannah Miley and it was getting louder and louder she was kind of coming down the back end of the race and I was thinking this is pretty cool. And like, everyone's just getting a bit louder. And then I wasn't expecting kind of the, the noise to drop, like the, the heat to kind of clear the water. And then my name to pop up on the scoreboard and it like get really noisy all over, all over again. And I was thinking, Oh my gosh, like all these people are cheering for me. Cause I'm from great Britain and got this like little flag next to my name. And to be kind of behind the block, I thought, right, well, literally this is what my dream has been for the so many years and like I'm actually like living it right now so like the adrenaline just went through the roof I got in swam like the absolute clappers down the butterfly length probably messed up my pace a little bit um finished in like a 438 which was my fastest ever morning swim by a good few seconds um missed out on the final but at that point I kind of didn't really care I was like I've literally just experienced like my my dream and my goal within like five minutes and I was like that was what I was working for for kind of like six seven years so it it was just like really special and my family had all come to watch again because it was um at home so it was not too far to travel um and yeah it was just that that first kind of taste of right now I've been to one like I don't just want to come again for the ride and be team cheerleader for the next seven days 
I want to come next time and, and kind of make my stamp. And that was where I really real, like kind of realized that like I could be better than I was and not just make teams. Like, could I win medals? Could I make another Olympics? And it just kind of fueled the rest of that excitement and, and passion through till kind of now, really. Definitely sounds like you weren't just on autopilot though. You were, you were taking it in, you were enjoying the moments you were kind of, cause you do hear that a lot, don't you? That people are so focused on their, you know, their plans and all this sort of stuff that they, they shut everyone out. Um, you know, I think it was Grant Hackett the other day was saying he's never looked up into the stands. He always just mm. comes out as focused for you. Were, were you really sort of just soaking it in though? I think so. I think because I'd, I'd never kind of took anything for granted in my career so far. So I thought I might never make another Olympic Games. Like it's something really special to do once. Never mind to do it again and again or win a medal or break a world record or any of that. It was kind of like, this is what I've been working for was to make that team to also become an Olympian. And then to, to have that experience, I remember I went and sat in the stands just for like 10 minutes before I went down to my race so I could kind of, just see how noisy it was, like actually see it from the outside rather than just from like behind my lane so that I could really appreciate like what I was about to do and what I was about to experience and kind of be a part of. And I think that was always my like deep down. It was like, well, I might never make another game. So if I just go on autopilot and just not, not take any of it in, not enjoy it, I'll have just wasted the experience that I've trained so hard to kind of have. So, yeah, it was definitely for me about enjoying that. Obviously, wanting to perform as best I could. And I did the best I could on the day with my fastest heat swim. But it was more of the experience and what I'd achieved was something that I wasn't just going to take for granted and just try and soak it all up and remember it. And I'll probably never, ever forget that noise, really. It was so loud. You experienced something definitely that not many people get to that home games and being at Olympics. And, and obviously, as you said, that's something that people can ever take away from you. That memory will always be with you. Now, a lot of other memories through your career as well. And if you've listened to a few of my podcasts, which I know you have, you'll know that when, when I talk to someone who, who has done quite a bit within the sport, sometimes we kind of have to go through certain years, not quickly, but I just more <laughs> give a snapshot and, and your best, you know, stories and your best memories because otherwise we would be here all day and I know you've got plenty of time but I I don't think you genuinely meant that you have all day to chat with me so what I'll do is I'll throw out uh, a year and uh, and obviously a championships at you and then you just give me your you know best story whether it's a good one could be a bad one it might have been you know a learning experience again the struggles that you went through so we'll start with 2013 world champs in Barcelona I remember being in Barcelona, um, kind of thinking that I'd established myself a little bit in um, London and what was I going to do now? And I'd waited kind of the total opposite. I'd waited till the ninth day to swim the 400 IM rather than being on day one. So it was just kind of ticking over and ticking over and everyone was racing. We weren't necessarily swimming that well as a team. So the environment wasn't necessarily like super exciting. And I was like, just stay out of that try and focus on what, what you're wanting to do and, and what you've got to do on day nine, which is literally the last event of the meet by the relays. And I finished ninth and I was absolutely devastated. I thought the only thing I wanted to do was to come here, make a final and get a second swim. And to fall short of that, I remember my mum was like, you've done awesome, you've, you've improved from last year, your time was faster. And I was just like, yeah, but I finished ninth. <laughs> and I'd missed out on the final again. So it was... 
it was another year where I kind of thought, oh, I wish I could have just squeezed like an extra bit and, and got that second swim to experience what it was like to be in a final. Because watching a heat and watching a final is totally different. So I knew there'd be a, a massive difference being a heat or a final. I just wanted to have that, that kind of experience as soon as I could. You touched on something pretty interesting there that I don't think we've ever talked about on the podcast, which is, you know, if your team is going well or not so well, how that impacts you guys, especially the swimmers at the end of the meet, even for Australians. I know we've had some brilliant meets where everyone's on a high every day. There's, you know, um, medals and records. And we've also had, you know, meets where things haven't gone so well. And usually it's like on day four or five that we're looking to this you know, savior or someone, you know, Mac or someone to just come out of it and please get us a medal to say what sort of pressure is on you guys to, you know, if, if obviously putting on yourself, not so much that everyone's yeah. chasing you going, come on, Amy, we need you to. Really <laughs> it's out. all about you. <laughs> In our week, if you do this though, we could do really well. Yeah. But like, yeah. What sort of pressure do you feel, uh, you know, as a part of the team to kind of step up when maybe things aren't going as well? I think it, it's not necessarily like, I guess, a pressure, but you, ex, you kind of think, well, I'm part of this team. So to come here, I want to give something to the team rather than just kind of make it along the trip and just be here for the sake of being here. Obviously, you want to perform well for yourself, but then I guess you're representing your country. Everyone's watching, everyone's supporting. And as a team, you're just not necessarily performing as they would expect you to. It's kind of, I guess sometimes can be not the best environment it's not necessarily negative but people aren't buzzing there's not loads of chat you're just kind of then thinking right who's up who's up tomorrow like what what have we got in the pool tomorrow like who are we trying to get behind now and it kind of felt a little bit like that every day and we were just falling like fourth or ninth the whole time and it was kind of like how the meet was going and people were still performing at their best but we just weren't getting not the lucky break, but we just weren't the right side of the medals or the right side of the finals as a team. And it was quite, I guess, difficult to be like, oh, come on. Like, you're just so gutted for your teammates that it's just that kind of like, oh, rather than the other way of it being like so exciting. And so then try and not absorb that and just kind of think, well, I'm still technically training. Like, I'm, I've got eight days. Like, I'm only just starting taper in reality. Yeah. 400 IMs somewhere. I get like a week. So <laughs> just thrown into the meat and, and just trying to kind of be involved but step back and focus on my own swim was quite difficult. Um, and then to get in and fall just short myself, I was just disappointed for myself. Another disappointing swim, I guess, for the team because we were just the wrong side of another finalist. And it, it was, I guess, difficult to just stay in that, um, that bubble. And it definitely taught me a bit more about your day nine at the next Worlds, what you're going to do differently because you can't waste all your energy on everyone else for the first seven or eight days and then expect to perform your best. So it was, it was another thing that I learned, I guess, just to, to absorb and learn from going forward and whatever meet, wherever the 400 IM ended up next. Well, it ended up 2014 Com Games in Glasgow. What do you remember from there? Um, that year for me was quite a. It had like it was a really positive year, and I just didn't get the result that I wanted. So obviously, Hannah was on here a couple of uh, weeks ago. She was talking about like how she experienced that meet, and that whole year I'd been to altitude twice. Um, I just moved. I was just um, finishing like uni. Um, I'd gone part time. I was taking like a little bit of a break to kind of focus a bit more on, on that year. 
because I knew that I was improving and I thought this could be, be my year. I dropped loads of time in like January. So I was thinking absolutely buzzing, awesome. Like everything's finally kind of going the way that I want it to. Um, and I got to the games and I knew it was going to be a tough race and I knew that it was going to be basically me versus Hannah. Like it had been all year, every British champs in Britain for the last couple of years, it was me versus Hannah. It was in Glasgow, so it was going to be in Scotland, me versus Hannah. Um, and yeah, I, I remember getting in for the race, the heat was really comfortable and not trying to get ahead of myself. I thought it's, it's just going to be a battle tonight on who can get their hand on the wall first. And I was leading pretty much the whole way until the last 100 metres. I think we turned even at the 100 metre wall and then 50 to go. We were like, she was like, no point, not something in front of me. And I guess me having burnt all my energy to get in front and stay in front just didn't have anything left to come down that last 50. And Hannah with the adrenaline and the Scottish crowd were going mental. And even I could hear that. Uh, I was going to ask, she did, she did say that they were going yeah. nuts. Did you hear <laughs> it that? It was so um, noisy. Yeah. It, was, it was just the volume kind of like increased and you knew that we were racing and you knew it was close. And I thought, if they're going that mad, she must be absolutely flying down this last length. And everyone on poolside was just going mad for both of us. And we were just having this mammoth race, basically. It felt like it was 50 metres. It just taken like 10 minutes rather than 30-odd seconds. And the wall was going further away and Hannah was moving further away. And I was just digging and digging. And I just had nothing in me to, to go with her. And I finished and... I finished silver at the Commonwealth Games and I was absolutely like distraught. I was so disappointed in myself. I was like, this could have been my swim. Like I'm always second in Britain. I'm always just falling short. Like this could be the one where I finally get the gold. And again, massive PB, fell short, got a silver medal and I was disappointed. And my parents were going mad at me. Like you just won a silver medal at the Commonwealth Games. And I was like, yeah, but it wasn't the color that I wanted. I was winning, did you not see, for like 320 metres of the race? Like, I should have won. Um, so it did take me a long time to kind of get over that and not then just presume that every time I was ahead, I was going to get swam over and die and not do as well as I should have. And even to this day, that is my PB. I have not gone as fast as I have in that one swim. So I know it was phenomenal and I know it was an amazing swim, but... I guess you're just driven to kind of winning a medal over a time and it's about the race, not the clock. So to, to just fall short and win the silver. And even on the podium, like I didn't look very happy. I'd been crying, like admittedly I was peeved off that it wasn't me on the top podium. So it wasn't necessarily the nicest kind of day for me. Um, I remember my coach at the time, Lisa Bates, was like, just don't worry about it. You've swam the best you could have swam you couldn't have gone any quicker because you'd just done a PB. Mm. And I went to bed thinking, well, yeah, I've done that, but still I didn't win the gold medal. And I had 200 fly later in the week. And she was like, right, well, go and prove everybody wrong that you are the athlete that you know you are. And you're, you're, you are a fighter. Like, you, you didn't give up. You just didn't have anything left in you. Like, and, and kind of prove everybody wrong. And for me, that was kind of always my way of like dealing with something. I'd be like, ha. I'll show you, like, we'll get in and, and do it now. So I knocked off, like, three seconds at the trials in my 200 metres butterfly, gone from, like, 210-something to 207. So I, I was like, right, 
if I can get back down to that and like it wasn't just a fluke and I can do it again, like I could be really competitive in the event and I'd qualified in like, uh, I think it was lane two or lane seven. So I was like just near the outside and I literally didn't even think about what anyone else is going to do, how anyone else is going to race. I thought, right, just get in, smash this and see what happens. And if you can get as close to the podium, because no one's expecting you to do that, like it'll be epic. And I remember getting in and being so annoyed that I hadn't done what I wanted to in the 4am that this 200 butterfly like barely hurt because I was just like full of adrenaline and just gunning down every length thing and right, one length done, next length, what have you got in you? Like keep going, keep going. And I didn't actually realize like how close I was to even winning the gold medal until we came down the last length and I hit the wall, knew that nobody was really around me and it was basically a battle between me and the girl in lane seven. So we were like opposite ends of the pool. And I went two or seven again, um, pretty much equaled my PB and kind of felt like I'd redeemed myself by making a second podium and getting a medal for Team England that nobody was expecting. And that was kind of what made up for the whole trip for me. It was, well, I came away with two silvers rather than just kind of one disappointing one. Yeah. How do you look back on it now? I know just, you know, obviously in the heat of the moment, you were upset about it and you, you know, you were disappointed that you didn't get the result you were after. I know um, in, you haven't heard it yet because it has come out, but uh, I interviewed Grant Hackett the other day and he's been on a, another Australian podcast and openly said that he looks back on his two silvers as failures. He said, nobody could tell me any other way, any other way. When I look at it, I failed. There's no other way. I, he goes, it actually disgusts me to look at those medals because it just infuriates him to look back. Have you moved on now or do you still look back and go, mm, should have been? Like Mixed emotions. I, I look back and think that was my best ever swim. Like that was my PB and I've still never been as quick as that. So it was technically my best ever swim in terms of time in my career. But the flip side of that, I'm like, it wasn't the medal. It wasn't the color that I wanted. It was disappointing. So it's like always got those mixed emotions where, yes, it was the best that I had and the best that I had should have won me that gold medal, but it didn't. Mm. So it's still kind of like a little bit bitter, a bit raw. And it took me a couple of years to kind of get over the fact that someone said to me as soon as I swam, you need to improve your front crawl because if you're going to compete internationally, you need to be stronger in that. And straight away, that was kind of the, the, the red flag. And I was like, oh, am I never going to be winning medals? Like, am I never going to win the gold because I'm not strong enough at the back end? Like, and that stuck with me for a few years and made some of my swims a disaster because I'd be going out too slow thinking I need to save energy for the back end. And it, especially in 400 IM swimming, it, it's, it's like a really kind of tactical event. You've got to think mm. about where your strengths are, but where other people's strengths are and not focusing too much on everyone else, thinking about what you're doing. And it just kind of like made me lose my head for a bit. And I couldn't work out what the best way for me to swim my phone dry was, even though I'd already found it because I just swam a massive PB. So it was like, took me like a couple of years to realize that what I was doing was right. I just wasn't strong enough on the day and another athlete was better than I was. And to have that realization two, three years after that was like, what on earth have you just been thinking about like for the last three years? You've been overanalyzing and just overthinking everything when you actually swam a PB and that is how that is your best way to swim that event. Yeah. So it, it, it was a little bit tricky in terms of that and everything was then kind of like I was a lot more nervous behind the block 
I guess, a bit more kind of apprehensive because I was worrying about the last length before I'd even dived in. And that's now what I tell swimmers not to focus on because it is the biggest thing that messed up all my swims was worrying about the end result before I'd even go in the pool. And it took a few years, as, as I said, to, to realize that I was basically being stupid and, and silly and that I almost shouldn't have listened to whoever told me that and, and just knew that I was good enough and I, was, I gave my best shot. It wasn't because I wasn't good enough or anything else. I just didn't have that on the day. And um, yeah, to, to kind of realize that a few years later, I was like, Amy, what were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, um, you know, perfect example of a, of a great story there for people and, and young swimmers, especially to, to listen to and, and to get words of wisdom from, because no doubt, you know, in coaching young swimmers myself, I see them do smash a PB, but you know, what we talked about before they walk over behind the blocks isn't what they're thinking about. They've got in there. Like I'll say, you know, if, if you go top 10 tonight, like, wow, what a great effort. But they walk over going, no, I'm meddling. And thinking, what the, what do you relax yourself? Like if you, if you go top 10, that's <laughs> such a great achievement, but they've already set their bar a lot higher. So I think, as you said, to look back in hindsight um, and, and see that you did do so well and, and you did kill it um is is a good thing so it's a great um as i said lesson for for youngsters to listen to now what about 2015 world champs in kazan um yeah i had made my first world final i went there still kind of not really sure the best way to swim as i said it was just after um the commies and i was almost going already a bit deflated because i was like oh can i do can i do one better than last year like can I swim the last length well enough? And I'd made a final and I finished seventh, but I just didn't really enjoy the whole week. It was again, last part of the week, um, just waiting around to swim. I was a lot better at kind of managing myself in terms of what I was doing, staying out of the team, like I'd kind of spoke about before. But even though I swam quite well and made my first world final, I, I just don't remember really enjoying it that much because the whole week I was just worrying about what the result was going to be rather than enjoying the experience like I had done before. And it was when I thought, well, I've already been to one world and I've just, that was like my learning one. So now I'm expecting more from myself. And even though, as I said, I made my first world level final and, and finished seventh for me, it was still just kind of a little bit flat and not necessarily the, the best trip that I'd been on just because I had so many expectations that I probably didn't enjoy the week as much as I should have because all I was thinking about was kind of like self-doubt and the what-ifs and that I'm on the last day again and I didn't do that well last time. So that was the first trip where I think I'd been away as a team and just not really kind of thought, oh, I love that. Like I've got loads of good memories. It was just kind of one that I just like floated through a little bit. What about 2016 Olympic Games, Rio, you said before it was, it was definitely an experience. How do, how do you look back on that one? Rio for me was kind of like, right, you've been to London, now what can you do? And still having those kind of like worries about what was going on and how I was racing. I was still kind of swimming like up and down all season. I hadn't had like a positive season where I was thinking, right, I'm going to swim absolutely awesome when I get here because all season I've been swimming great. Like worlds, I made a the final, like I can do it again. And the day before my swim, I had like a mini mental breakdown and I was in Mel Marshall's group and I, I got out and she was like, you all right? And I was like, I'm so nervous. Like, I don't know why I've never been this nervous before in my life. 
And I just like, I was like getting all emotional and she was like, what is wrong? I was like, well, I might never make another Olympics. Like two for me could be like, that's it, big tick in the box. And now I'm expecting myself to be the right side of the finals, like perform well and kind of be a competitor against all these girls that I've raced with in the world for the last four or five years, rather than just kind of be there and just pass by. And she was like, why are you worrying about this? And I was like, well, I know I'm a warrior and we've kind of already established this <laughs> in the last few stories. Um, and she was like, just, just get in and enjoy it. And she kind of like reminded me, like not many people make it to an Olympics, like never mind two. Just because you've done one doesn't mean that this one's any less special. It's still an experience. It's still something you've earned and a place that you've earned to be part of this team. And she was like, you're, you're up again day one. There's no expectation from anyone else other than yourself to like just get in and swim. And as soon as I'd had that like little mini talking to her, I was like, you know what? Doesn't matter how I'm thinking about the end result because I haven't even dived in yet and I was already worrying about it not being my best. Mm. So I went to sleep that night. I felt so much better. And I woke up and I thought, right, this could be my last ever international competitive swim. So that was kind of where I was coming from it with that mindset because yeah, I was lucky to make the other teams and I knew I, was, I worked hard and deserved to be on them. But it was almost like that realisation of we never guaranteed a place every year just because you've done it the year before and you're quite good at swimming. So I thought, right, well, I'm going to get in. I'll give it my best. I was in the same heat as uh, Maya Dorado. So I was like, right, she'll be making it back. So I've got to try and give her a run for her money. And swam an awesome heat, went like... 434 flat and I was like buzzing the fastest I'd ever gone in the morning by like I think nearly two seconds made it back in the final and then I just I'd never gone that quick in the morning and I hadn't realized how much energy it was going to take out of me so I was going in I think rank six and I went 435 zero so I went literally one second slower and initially I was like oh I've gone slower but then as soon as I kind of got out and reflected on the swim within about half an hour I was like You've just given two of your fastest swims in one day. Like I couldn't ask any more for myself. And maybe I'm not meant to win an Olympic medal. Maybe I'm just going to be one of those people that's competitive, but you don't have to win the Olympic medal to be good at swimming. And like that realization was kind of made Rio that little bit more memorable in terms of even though I was expecting something from myself, like I'd kind of achieved it because I'd made an Olympic final. Like the first time I'd made it there, this time I'd improved like on my placing. I was competitive um, and it was just a, like a really nice experience. And then to kind of have Hannah in the final and I guess I was a bit peeved that I hadn't necessarily gone as quick and obviously she just missed out on the medal. So we were sharing a, like a, a house in the village. So we pr pretty much spent the whole night chatting, talking um, about the swim, about the day, everything else. And then we kind of like, not put it to bed, but it just was a nice way to kind of have that day rather than it just be like, Amy, you finished seventh and you're disappointed. Like, what are you talking about? And just to realize that, well, I'd made it to the Olympics and I'd been better than the one before. So it was a, a really cool um, day. And then I swam the 200 butterfly, didn't necessarily go as quick as I wanted to never raced that sort of world level. So I hadn't got a clue what I was expecting to do. <laughs> Didn't make it back. Um, and yeah, it was just a totally different environment. The village, everything about it was as, as special as London, but like polar opposites. What about, um, you mentioned a few of the people that you raced against now. So something I'm interested in, 
is is your top say three so what i've got here is top three people that you love to race domestically <laughs> and people yeah. that you love to race internationally so we'll start with domestically give me your top three people that you love to race against uh, domestically um obviously hannah's top of that list whenever we whenever we race each other we normally push each other to do the best that we can so one of us will normally do better than the other one of us will be happy one of us necessarily <laughs> won't but we kind of push each other to be competitive in this country so that when we get overseas we know that we've got that high level of competition we're just taking it and adding in a few more competitors um I guess kind of growing up, I used to love racing sort of Kerry Ann Payne because she was one of those ones that I knew was going to be strong at the back end of the race. So if I could be up there or ahead, I knew that I had to dig in to really stay ahead because she'd be coming back for me a million miles an hour down the freestyle then. Um, and then I guess recently kind of having, um, I guess for the youngsters in Britain, we've got um, a young girl coming through called Katie Shanahan. And to see her race it just reminds me of myself a little bit because i guess i was young racing sort of 20 year olds there was a massive age difference when i was sneaking in um british finals kind of in lane six and seven being like shouldn't really be here but <laughs> here i am and i'm tiny and i'm 15 and she just kind of reminds me a little bit of that in terms of she gets in she'll race she'll give it 100 percent um get out and it's just when she's on a good day, you're thinking, I better get a move on because she's coming and she'll be the next, like, the next me or the next Hannah or whatever in this country. So I guess um, those three were always fun to race. And I guess it's just like different, um, you get different experiences with each one. What about internationally? Who, who are your favorite swimmers to be in a final against that you look across and you're like, all right, let's go? Um, so although I hadn't necessarily raced Maya Dorado that much until she kind of just popped out, swab awesome at the Olympics. Um, she was awesome to race. I knew that, like me, she had quite a strong backstroke leg in that event, kind of coming from that background. So to race her in the heat, I knew that, well, this was going to be a competitive heat, could put me in a good lane. And if I was good enough and I hung with her, maybe she could carry me all the way through. So she was always really fun to race. Um, I guess racing Katinka Hosu is she is the best medley swimmer in the world. And She's won numerous medals. You can't even count them. Um, I've always raced her at Europeans, um, been competitive there. And I guess even in terms of like local competitions throughout the year, we've done European meets, raced in Rome, um, swam in Belgium at Flanders, and she's kind of always there. So especially as I was improving, she was kind of one that, even though she was in London with me, you didn't really, I guess, know who could think or who was. So that name then became a medley staple and it was right. I'm racing Katinka. She's one of the best in the world. Now the best in the world. Mm. What, if I can hang with her, what can I learn from her? Like, how can we race together um, and, and get the best out of myself? So she, she's always awesome to race. And I guess because she's so good, you just kind of have that respect in terms of, well, you know, she's going to perform can you go with her and can you give her a run for her money, basically, was how I used to kind of approach that. Um, and I guess not necessarily raced her, but I used to really look up to um, Steph Rice. She was kind of the, the first woman that went um, under 430. She was kind of, she swam very similar to the way that I swam in terms of like her pacings. And I used to kind of like set 
my training times off how she swam a 400 IM. Because um, I was thinking, well, in terms of percent, if I knock like a little percent off each bit, then it was kind of going to get me a 429. Um, and I wish I had could have raced them all. And I wish that um, we were in kind of the same era. But I just loved the way that she went, approached the races, how she swam, like the way she swam. Um, and yeah, obviously, when I was younger, I came over to Australia, I think twice. I swam end of year tour, did Queensland State Championships twice. I think I was 13 and 14. So I had quite like a respect and kind of an eye in on the Aussies and being like, imagine if I was an Aussie swimmer, like <laughs> this would be awesome. And um, yeah, I swam against Emily Seabom at, at that age and was thinking she was the best backstroker there. And I was trying to get my nose in and, and give her, a, give her a, a run for the money, but never had any underwater work. So I think if I would have been in the era that Steph Rice would have been, it would have been awesome to kind of race and, and get involved with her. Now, mate, 2017, um, you have a knee injury. How difficult was that to overcome? Because you definitely, you definitely do overcome it. And I'll get to the Gold Coast in 2018 in a second. But you know, well, where was your head at through 2017 with that knee injury? Yeah, so it was a little bit rubbish. I'd never really had, I guess, like a big injury. I'd always had shoulder niggles be the summer. You get them growing up. Um, I had, a, I have a scoliosis, so I've always had like back pain and being an uncomfortable traveller and always having to be stretched out and see the physio when I've sat in the car or been on a plane. So I was used to kind of having to manage myself, but not necessarily used to having like an injury or a pain that you just couldn't get rid of. And being a medley swimmer at the beginning, it wasn't too bad because I was like, oh, I'll, I have to stay off the breaststroke, but I can just focus on everything else. And then as the trials were getting closer and closer, I was thinking, well, I've still not really swam any breaststroke because every time I do it, the next day it just flares up. So it, it got quite like annoying and no one could work out what was wrong. Like it wasn't swelling. It wasn't um, like there was no break. There was nothing in around that area, no strains. It was just an angry knee that just wasn't happy with breaststroke. And I guess it's not the most natural movement. So you can understand why sometimes knees just don't agree. But um, it was just frustrating. And I remember getting to the trials thinking, right, you swam no breaststroke, but everything else will be all right. So just try and get under the qualification time. And I did and made my, I guess, the time for the world and qualified. And then I guess never really got there because everything else happened. <laughs> hey, talked about your coach, Steve Tigg. How, how good has he been for your career? Obviously, I think about three years you said you've been working with him. How has he helped you know, keep your career going and obviously take it to the next level? Yeah, so in 2017, when I had sort of my knee niggles and I wasn't really sure kind of what, what was going on and how I was going to perform, I was in um, London still training with Lisa Bates. So I trained with her for sort of the four years or five years maybe um, through London, through kind of everything in between. And I, I was kind of getting to that place where I was like um, thinking that, Swimming was becoming a bit more of a chore. Obviously, with my knee, it was becoming a bit of a pain. Um, and it just wasn't kind of everything wasn't ticking the boxes. It was becoming like a bit of an effort. And then I qualified for the world and I fell over and had a really bad accident. So I didn't make it to the world and I broke two ribs. Um, How do you manage that? Well, how did you manage this fall? What happened? I have to ask. So, <laughs> I'd qualified for the world champs and I was on the world prep camp like about two weeks after the trials 
And I was thinking, right, I've got to the world now. It's all about my knee. So I was with like the members of staff and I was like, just about making my knee better. And we were on a like excursion and I got knocked over and fell on a step, broke two ribs. Then it bashed my elbow, got a compression fracture in my spine. So it was like, well, you made it to world, but now you're not going because you can't do anything. Mm. And it took me about three or four months to kind of get back to like, I guess being in one piece before I could kind of get back in the pool. Um, so that was really difficult. And at that, at that time I was thinking, right, this is definitely it. This is my swimming career. I've fallen over and had this massive accident. I'd already had a bad knee. Things just weren't, felt like they weren't going my way at all. Not at all. And then someone, the had, a, someone time, had a voodoo doll and they're out there just. Yeah, they were just stabbing away basically yeah, the whole yeah, time. Yeah. And at the same time this happened, um, I, the program that I was swimming in London, which was at the Olympic pool, um, had like kind of folded and it basically shut down. So this is why I ended up moving to Stirling um, because I was, one, I was kind of forced to and I thought, right, I don't want to end my career on an injury. If I'm going to end it, I want it to be on my terms. And I always wanted to go to the Gold Coast. I thought, no matter how I get there or what happens, like imagine finishing your career in the Gold Coast. Like this would be absolutely epic. So for me, that was all it was basically about at first was getting to the Gold Coast. I hadn't really even thought about medals necessarily and what was going to happen. I just thought, if I'm going to finish my career, this is an awesome place to do it. And I moved to Sterling in September pretty much with the idea of it being maybe like a one-year deal and that I was going to swim and I was going to retire and this was going to be awesome and whatever else. And obviously then moving, I had to like do all my rehab. I had knee surgery after I'd fell over because I thought, well, I might as well get it sorted now because I can't do anything else. <laughs> so as I was moving to Sterling, it was kind of like a, a year where I just said to Steve, like, look, I don't know what I'm going to be doing after this. I am obviously in like, the worst state possible moving to you, which I'm really sorry about. Um, the physios, the support staff, um, S&C kind of, well, basically put me back together to be the athlete that I was almost before. And I just remember thinking, all I've got to do is just get fit. If I can get fit and make it on the team, then if I end my career on, a, on an English team, like this will be awesome. So it was just like step by step, September went, October went, and then I had to qualify in December and I knew I was, I knew I was fixed, but I definitely wasn't fit. I've been doing maybe like three or four care session for the last couple of months and only really in November, December, I'd kind of done a little bit more of that. Hadn't got up to a full training week, still wasn't lifting heavy in the gym. And I thought, please just get on the team. And I literally scraped the qualification time by 0.2 or something. Um, and after that, it was like, January came, we were on this trip, we were in Australia as Sterling, I knew I'd made the team and it was kind of like, right, let's see what shape you can get into and see if you can actually be competitive rather than now just make it and just be there for the ride. So every day I went in and I was thinking, right, what can I do today that might make me a little bit better and potentially help me be competitive in the race? And things just kind of, I guess, went one week to the next, I got stronger, I got better. I was just enjoying, like absolutely loving training, um, which I hadn't, I guess, done for a little while. And then obviously I went to the goal course and things just kind of went perfectly for me. You mentioned that you were enjoying training. Did, did training sorry, change much 
with the program change? Did it all of us did the philosophies and, you know, the sessions and all that sort of stuff change? Was it more of a, you know, um, a breath of fresh air for you that these were sort of different, not necessarily better or worse, but just a different sort of, um, you know, terminology coming your way? Yeah. So I've always come from a program and always kind of, it was always instilled in me that you worked hard and I was swimming probably like 60, 70,000 meters a week when I was 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. So that through my entire career, I'd just been worked hard. I've trained hard. I raced hard. I swam every event when I was competing. And I was just one of those swimmers that I just guess I'd made a name for myself by being the first one in and the last one out. And um, I then got to Sterling and was working with Steve and he was kind of like, well, you couldn't do anything for the first three months. So we couldn't give you six or seven K. So mm. I was unrealistic. He was like, but now you can put a week together. We're going to like periodize it a little bit better, focus on being really high quality when it needs to be and just recovering when you need to recover rather than kind of my recovery still being like a big aerobic session, just <laughs> yeah. long and still quite hard. Mm. Um, so it was a total different philosophy of, you work hard when I want you to work hard and you give it absolutely everything. But when you're recovering, you're going to count your strokes. You're going to really tune in a lot more. And it just became, even though it was difficult, it became more manageable again. Obviously I was, wasn't 12 or 13 anymore. I was like 24. So I knew I had to listen to my body a little bit better, but I'd never really done it before. Never really understand, understood that. Could that make a difference to me being a better swimmer? And in hindsight, I wish I'd learned that a little bit earlier in my career because who knows what I might have achieved at the age I'm at now rather than kind of jumping on the bandwagon of that kind of program in last minute. But it was just a nice environment. The group I was with, I'd never been training in a, like a senior performance environment before. I'd always train with age groupers, been the oldest one, but still give them a run for their money. <laughs> so it was nice to be in a performance environment where everyone was aligned with the same goals, the same focus um, and the same targets. And having that environment and that kind of, I guess, breath of fresh air just felt like I was like 17 again, rather than being sort of 24 and potentially finishing my career. And I guess that's probably why, well, it is the reason why I'm still competing and still training because I'm actually enjoying training still and it's become manageable and there's still things that I can focus on and work on and it's not just getting hammered, being knackered all the time and thinking I've got to do that again and again and again. Now, Commonwealth Games, Gold Coast, you said that was your goal, you just wanted to get there and then by the time you qualified, then you're like, okay, well, I don't want to just get there, I want to see how good I can be on the day. Well, gold in the 400 IM is how, how good you could be. <laughs> uh, a huge moment for you in your career. Um, and, and obviously going through you know, your career as I have done just now, obviously it even feels like it would have been a really big moment for you personally. How proud are you of, of that moment? Because you've battled probably a lot, not so much just physically with the injury before, but obviously mentally and all those sort of things of overcoming. Am I good enough? Am I not good enough? Should I keep going? What's going on? Here you are now, 2018 gold. You know, you more than proved that you were good enough. How proud are you of that? I guess everyone asks, like, what's your, the pinnacle in your career? And although making my first Olympics in London was one of those, I think finally kind of getting my hand on a gold medal was so special 
even in terms of being on home soil and being at like British championships, Hannah would always have won the, the gold and I would always have took home the silver. And it was never really the other way around. And for it to happen, like internationally at a Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast, like under floodlights, my mum and dad had come out to watch. Um, they thought, well, if this is going to be a last swim, we're definitely not missing it. My mum had never been to Australia. So it was even like a special moment for her. So she'd done the trip. And um, yeah, it was, I kind of had the feeling of like, whatever will be, will be. And I remember saying that, like one of my friends said that to me before I went and she was like, well, yeah, you've been injured and you'll, everything will either fall into place. So like try not to worry about it and just enjoy it. And this was when I was being a grumpy whinge bag that I was injured and everything else wasn't necessarily happening. And I remember just thinking like back to that moment and being like, you know what? She's totally right. Like if I win a silver medal tomorrow, don't, do not cry. Do not be upset about it because it's a silver medal at the Commonwealth Games. And from where you've come, it's, it's still a massive achievement. So I kind of had the, like the understanding with myself, like gave myself a talking to and was like, whatever you get tomorrow, like be happy with it because you know you're going to give 100%. So you can't then beat yourself up if you don't doesn't get the, the colour of the medal that you want just because it's not the colour you wanted because I knew in myself that I was going to give 100%. I wasn't going to think, oh, I'll just get behind the block and maybe like tactically give it a bit of this and, and, and just get out and think, oh, I could have gone faster because I knew that wasn't me. So it was almost be happy with what you got. And then the day of the race, I woke up and I was like, right, whatever will happen today is going to happen today. If it's a silver, smile when you get that medal. Um, you want a nice picture this time because the last one, you're all <laughs> red-eyed and not looking the best. Um, and obviously, I got a lovely bronze tan from being on the Gold Coast. So I raced the heat in the morning, felt really comfortable. Um, and then I thought, right, you know what? Tonight, let's give it a go see what happens. You know, you've got to race a little bit more tactically because at this point it was obvious it was going to be again me versus Hannah. And it was going to be that, that battle for who was going to get which color. And I just remember like feeling confident, knowing that my race plan was literally ticking off each length, how I wanted it to be. And then I remember turning down the last time thinking I've actually got a bit of energy in me. Like I could see myself pulling away. And as soon as I got that adrenaline boost, I thought this is actually happening. Like maybe I'm going to win the gold medal. And I just kept kicking and kept going. And to finish, no straight away that I saw like one next to my name. My mom and dad, I knew exactly where they were. And they were going absolutely mental in the stands. And I was like, oh, I've done it. <laughs> and it was just like a, a really like nice moment. And it was, I finally won a gold rather than kind of always being the person who comes in second. And yeah, it was really special. And I guess the medal's really nice and the ribbon's even snazzy. So it makes it all 10 times better. What I love about all of that is a few things. One is that this moment culminates and, and just hearing you talk in you finally realizing that, you know, whatever will be, will be. I'm not going to overanalyze this. I'm just going to go out and do my best. And, and if my best is good enough, then it is. Whereas, you know, the years prior, you kind of overthought things a little bit. And secondly, you, you mentioned you're a grumpy windbag. I love how through this whole chat, you're very like self-aware of how, you know, whether oh, you're yeah. being a sook, whether you're being cranky about something, you're very like self-aware of it. And you like, yeah, I am doing that. I understand that. And you kind of <laughs> own it a little bit. Like some people wouldn't own it. They'll be like, no, I'm not like that at all. 
yeah like I guess sometimes you are your own worst enemy and it literally took my mom I guess like shouting at me at the age of 24 and being like you need to get on with it or you stop <laughs> swimming and you stop whinging like you in two bits on the sofa and I guess because I am always self-aware of, of what's happening I try and understand that what is happening how it'll help me and what the result might be so to finally just be like you know what stop worrying stop thinking just get in and swim because you just love swimming and you love racing it was like finally like a sigh of relief because I wasn't carrying all that pressure on myself but then it was just so much fun and I was on the goal course and like I was racing under like floodlights so it just was this awesome like experience before I'd even dived in I was just buzzing to get in now we've danced around it a little bit in terms of uh, your race plan for a 400 IM. You've kind of, we've touched on it slightly, but give us a little insight into, you know, what is your race plan when you step behind the blocks and you've, you've centered and you're zoned in and you know what you're about to go in and do. How does that look to you? What are your main sort of points that you've got to, as you mentioned before, you tick in the boxes as you go. What are those boxes? So I try and break it down into like, I guess, eight, eight lengths. Um, and really just simplify it because I, I almost think, well, I've done the work in training and I've worked to the paces or the feel or whatever it might be. It's just a case of like reminding myself of like the big focus that I'm going to try and tune in on. Um, so I'll always try and stay quite relaxed on the butterfly, but it's a toss up between I'm quite strong at, at, the, at that first hundred. So sometimes I get it wrong and go out too quick. And even though it feels comfortable, I, I know I'll suffer later in the race. There's a real kind of toss between, I say, getting that first length, basically like 29.3, 29.5, almost to like the, the millisecond. If I can get it to the pace that I'm after, then the rest of the race runs quite smoothly. Um, so then I'll just think about building down the second length fly. I'll always think about building into the walls rather than just kind of getting around them. So I'm not necessarily the quickest on rotation, so I know I've got to do something about it before I get there. So I'll think about building down the second length. Um, the backstroke for me is one where I try and push on a little bit because I'm quite strong in that, in that uh, stroke, but making sure I'm not overworking the legs. So I'll be quite arm dominated. I'll think about kind of the rhythm and just trying to get into that rhythm as quick as I can because often that first length backstroke can be a little bit too slow for me and then I'm trying to pick it up and um, just kind of fall out of that momentum. And then I guess breaststroke, I like to say that is potentially one of my better hundreds in terms of splitting the field and being competitive. Um, and I'll always think about being long and strong and powerful, trying to keep my count to around about 20 strokes. Sometimes it's lower than that. And I think, oops, this might be a bit too slow. Like try and pick it up. You're getting to the wall and you're on like 16. You need to do maybe at least two more in the last six meters. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just trying to think about just the power and the connection and then down the second length, it's like, right, you've only got 150 meters left now, kind of really pick it up and pick up the rate a little bit on my breaststroke, but stay connected, almost try and remember that I'm, I'm faster when I'm technically better. So rather than just revving on my breaststroke for me, it's about holding the water and keeping that count quite like low. And then I just think of the freestyle like you've got nothing else to lose. Keep your head still because I have a habit of it getting a bit lost. Um, I guess as an age group swimmer, that was my worst habit. Just my head being all over the place. Never really learned to keep it still on front <laughs> crawl until I was about 17. So I try and think about just keeping my, keeping my head still, 
I think about getting my rate up on the first length and then really just bringing in the legs on the last length. And I guess sometimes it goes that way. Sometimes you'll think, hmm, there's a little bit off. But I know if I try and stick to kind of those focus points, then no matter how the race is going, I know I can either respond or react. And I've got a little bit of my strengths to work like here and there. So I guess I've tuned that over a long time and there was a point where I just get in and go mad from the beginning and then mm -hmm. realize and wonder why I'd come back 66 and a half and Maria Belmonte could come back in a 62 and I'll be like, what? <laughs> so <laughs> I've learned my lessons over the years to, to pace it a lot better. Oh, well, it's funny uh, when you said that about the fly and sometimes you get a bit too excited and you go a bit too hard and it never feels like it's too hard at the time because as a coach, so often that's the, that's the chat. And it's not even just in an IM. It could just be in a hundred freestyle. We talk about easy speed and we want to get out fast. We want to get out too hard. And uh, yeah, the swimmers will come back and they just lean over the post. They're huffing and puffing. Like, do you know what happened? Felt so good in that first lap. Like I wasn't even trying. I'm like, I might've felt that way. <laughs> but I but you were trying. <laughs> I can assure you, you were trying. So yeah, definitely. I think anybody out there can can relate uh definitely to that now you've had a brilliant career by anyone's standards and i i think you know you've been you know very consistent over you know nine ten years what made it sorry motivate you to keep going like how do you inspire yourself to to keep producing results and keep getting yourself on teams and because I, I can imagine it wouldn't be easy you know you see a lot of swimmers come along and they make a couple of teams and they fizzle out because of one thing or another and, and everybody goes through that. I'm sure in your life, there's been many things that have come and gone in terms mm. of distractions or, or things that you've had to overcome, but you've still managed to, you know, stick it out and, and be, you know, still there in the contest, which is a credit to you. What's the secret to that Joe? Do you think? I think for me, and if, I, if you ask anyone, like, I'm a bit of a swimming geek. Like, I just love swimming. I'm not necessarily someone that will, like, sit and analyze everyone else's performance and know all the best times in the world in every event. But when it comes to what I do and getting into training, like, I just love swimming and I just love training. And I guess, for me, racing is the really fun part. I, I, I'm quite sad in terms of, like, I have quite a good work ethic. So I, I like working hard and that satisfaction of, having a really good day at training, getting out and being like, I smashed that. Like I had such a good session, like it was awesome. And just knowing that it's going to help me improve it, even if it's only like a smidge next time when I get in and race. And for me, I think that's why I'm still doing it because I still get that enjoyment and satisfaction of training and then hoping that it'll come out in, in the race. And obviously we don't know as athletes what you're going to get when you race and compete. But I know that I enjoy the process and the training and working hard and hoping that that side of it will equal the result that I would like. So I think that's why I'm still swimming and that's why I've had such a successful career. Because as well along the way, like I haven't just taken anything for granted. I know I've had to work to get on that team and work for that result. So I'm not just coasting through it I know if I'm going to make the next year I have to work hard again have to try and think where can I improve and what I can improve to make it on the team the next year and I think that's why I've been around I would say a long while because I'm willing to evaluate work hard and know that it's not just guaranteed that I'll be selected next year on the team regardless because I'm just that good 
like that's just kind of not like in my my mindset yeah well it's a credit to you mate as i said i i was talking to a mate today and i was saying how sometimes i find it not hard to say, but I, I hope sometimes I don't offend people when I say, oh, you've been in the team for over a decade and things like this. Cause it's in no way trying to say like, oh, you've been around a minute. Like it, for me, it's more like a, you know, um, a high five to you guys to say, listen, I, I know how hard it is for, for swimmers to even be at that level for a year or two years to be there for that long, um, take something very special. So it's definitely more of a, a pat on the back than a, a reminder of how old people are getting or how long yeah. they've been around. So yeah, definitely. I hope you take it that way, but no, absolutely. As you said, you know, you, everyone goes through things. So you guys are those athletes that find ways to keep motivating yourself and, and navigate around those sorts of things for sure. I think, I guess I would have liked to have been, I guess, more successful in terms of Adam Peaty winning medals, breaking world records, but not everyone's, going to have that natural talent and that ability to be able to do that. Like when you look at the percentage to make it on an Olympic team, then you look at the percentage of people who make it in a final. And then you look at the percentage of people who win medals. It's literally like the smallest amount that you could even fathom to like put that into paper. So for me, it's almost like, and it's especially as I've gone on in my career, I've learned to accept that not every, you don't have to define yourself by, I guess, winning that medal or being that best. But for me, and which is what I try and kind of tell youngsters is I'm achieving the best level of success that's possible to me. Like I can't be a world record holder. Like I don't have that talent or that in the locker. So there's no good kind of thinking that I'm a failure if I haven't done that, even though I've dreamt of doing that because I can't get there. And it's not because I've not worked hard. It's just, I'm not, not that person. And there's only a few people in the world that get that. So to fall short of that, it's not like a disappointment. It's just you're not capable of that. And I might have been if I'd have moved to Sterling 10 years ago or if I'd have learned to understand different things as and when, but you just can't kind of beat yourself up because you're not, oh, I haven't broke a world record. I haven't won an Olympic medal. Because as I said, like I'm lucky and grateful that I've been on the team for 12 years. I've been all around the world, made loads of friends, competed in like such different environments and competed against all different levels and come out with different results and for me that's almost as successful as if I had have had that dream of winning an Olympic gold as a 10 year old but only done it once and then never had the rest of the, the trips and the, the experiences and the medals and the friends it's just like understanding that for me that wasn't I was never going to be that good, but what I've done is actually kind of pretty good and give myself a little pat on the back. <laughs> so don't worry, <laughs> telling me I've been around for 10 years, I don't get offended. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you deserve the pat on the back. And in terms of, you know, looking at Adam Petey, I don't think you're alone in looking at Adam and going, God damn, I, I wish I was, I wish I was that <laughs> quick. I mean, yeah, he, he, he's definitely a, a one in a million type of athlete. <laughs> Um, let's get away from swimming for a second though. What do you get up to when you're away from the pool and you're going up and down the black line? I think in my research, I saw, you know, you love your baking and cooking is, am I right in that? Do you like getting in the kitchen and cooking up a storm? Yeah. So I'm quite, I'm not good in the kitchen, but I'm not one of those microwave meals and pop it in the microwave. Um, like I me, quite enjoy like me. it's okay. You can <laughs> say it. I'm not good at it. I'm glad that my wife is a very, very good cook and I get very well looked after. Yeah. 
So I, I quite enjoy getting in the kitchen and making something nice for dinner. I guess you come home from training, you're always starving. So whether I make it before, whether I spend like some time in the kitchen to enjoy that, I just quite like that, I guess, process of just kind of shutting the kitchen door and being in there for half an hour, 45 minutes, longer if you're doing a Sunday dinner. And it, it like I always think this is going to, it'll definitely last longer than like five minutes on the plate, but it never does. But I just enjoy the, the process of just, I guess, like switching off a little bit and just yeah. kind of cooking. What else do you get up to when you're away from the pool? What do you like to do? Um, I'm, I'm quite content like with myself. So sometimes I'm, I'm, I'll just sit, maybe get a notebook out, scribbles, be organized, um, write lists because that's something I'm always methodical. So I'd be like, oh, what am I going to buy in shopping? And what have I got to do this week? And what timeline have I got coming up? Um, so I quite like to just kind of sit, put a bit of music on, just have some time for myself because I guess we're always so busy and we work so hard. It's sometimes nice even to just sit, put the telly on and just tune out, watch rubbish for half an hour. I've got some questions coming up a bit later in terms of TV and stuff that'll give us a better insight into what you're watching. But for now, um, you know, without a doubt, Team GB are in a pretty good spot at the moment. You mentioned Adam Peaty's name before. From an outsider's perspective, you know, you, you have the, the bird's eye view in terms of being involved within the team. How excited are you and, and are Team GB for, say, Tokyo next year? And fingers crossed that still does go ahead. You know, you guys are in a good spot and are, and are looking pretty strong in terms of, you know, the team across the board. I think, especially for me, because I've been around and been on so many different teams, you can see the difference between even like the London team and the swimmers coming through at the moment. It's a case of everyone wants to be on that team to be successful. No one's kind of along for the ride, just kind of making it and coasting. Everyone that gets there wants to be a part of something special and a part of Team GB and add to that success. So I think definitely from like the outset and being, being involved in that, you can just see how like everyone works hard, the hunger, the drive, and the success that people want our British swimming team to be successful. And we're not just kind of hoping to get to Tokyo because it'll be cool. We want to get there and perform. And I think a little bit that's where the, the team – kind of atmosphere and the attitudes have changed a little bit from when I was on the team as a youngster to now you see people come through and they're wanting to be the best not just wanting to be a part of it so that's definitely I guess something that is quite a nice um, kind of environment to be in amongst the team and I think going towards next year if everyone's got that same grit then hopefully we'll we'll have another successful year as a team. Now, as I mentioned before, I like to finish these chats with some less serious questions um, and because I, I think it gives us a better insight into what you like at home and what you like to do when you know, no one's around and what you listen to and what you watch. So it's pretty rapid fire though, so don't overthink it. And whatever you think is, is right is right because I've had people when I say like favorite music and their favorite music is country music, but they're too embarrassed to say it. I think, no, that's fine. It's a very you know, <laughs> safe space here, whatever you like. If you like Spice Girls, if you like, you know, Venga Boys, whatever you want to throw out there for it. So uh, yeah, whatever first comes to your mind. So favorite music, what do you like to listen to? Um, pop, a little bit of everything, but I, I got into like Eminem and listening to that like a lot before I race. Yeah, Lose Yourself. Do you listen to yeah, that when definitely. you're coming out? I think I know all the words to like 25 to life, but I'm not willing to sing them to you right now. 
I remember I went to watch it. I think I was like 15 when he, one of his first like tours out to Australia and I, it was hard to, you know, um, get able to go because there was such a big uproar in Australia about his lyrics. And I remember um, like everyone was up in arms about Stan and all this sort of stuff. So people like don't go and, I ended up going with my mum. My mum took me. So that was uh, an interesting, I think I ditched her at one point, but it, it, was, uh, it was an interesting experience nonetheless in my like uh, yellow bloody jumpsuit pants or whatever I was wearing. It's oh, horrible. Yeah. Anyway, I don't even know I brought that up. Now, what about favourite mus- uh, favorite movie? What sort of movies do you like to watch? Um, like a bit of everything. So I love Finding Nemo, classic, swimming, fish, water, mm, all that jazz. But then... Um, I quite like Shawshank Redemption um, and Law Abiding Citizen, like something with like a really gripping yep. storyline where it kind of like throws you off at the end and you're like, what? Didn't see that coming. Do you, do you have Netflix? Yeah. Have you seen I See You? It's a no, new- a few people have said that. Not, not been down that yet. Maybe I'll put that on the list. Yeah, put it on. Let me know how you go. Because just, I know obviously if you like those sort of thrillers and yeah. it's very interesting. Nothing too scary though. Because I'll be like behind a pillow. Well, I mean, if it is, don't blame me. (laughs) Um, What about about favourite meal? What are some of your favourite things to cook up? I'm really sad. And I guess as a swimmer, I just love spaghetti bolognese. Um, So if I'm going to, if I'm racing the next day, it'll be, I'll cook spaghetti bolognese. Just like a habit. (laughs) Um, Quite like a carbonara. Um, My partner loves a carbonara as well. So they kind of come out every week. Um, perfecting the recipe as you go obviously um but yeah just anything really just love cooking i guess something new is always exciting as well because you don't know how it's going to turn out now listen one thing i'm very jealous of of you guys is you get to visit some great countries now i have myself just in my own travels but you guys get to do it and compete there as well what are some of your favorite countries that you visited i do love australia I think the way of life, like obviously the weather um, and just kind of the, the atmosphere around being an athlete and being a swimmer was something that I admired so much when I was younger that I was like, all the people over here that are like famous are like sports people when I was about 14. I was like, this is awesome. Like I want to be from Australia and get a tan and be in the sun. So I do love Australia. Um, and I guess now it's got like a few extra memories, which is quite nice. Um, but in terms of, I guess, like, I really like being in um, Budapest as well in Hungary. That's quite a nice, nice place in Europe to me. Does that place go off when you're racing Katinka? I can imagine yeah, that would get pretty I remember, loud. I remember when I've done a few kind of um, European meets there before, and you think, like, it's only like, um, like kind of a duel, and the noise is insane. And you're like, what? <laughs> what about your favorite TV shows to binge watch? What do you like to get stuck into? Ooh, favorite TV show to binge watch. I quite liked um, Entourage and I One Tree Hill, but these are so old that probably half the kids listen. They'll be like, what are you on about? No, they won't understand, but I definitely understand One yeah. Tree Hill. <laughs> Sophia Bush was a very big um, yeah, crush of mine. I, I did love that show. Now, uh, yeah, I'm sure you were. What, who was yours? Was it Lucas? Was he your favorite? Yeah, I think so. But there was yeah, you Chad always Michael. kind of like fall in and out of love with Chad Michael Murray, like one way or another. And then when he was in Cinderella Story, I was yeah. like watching that on repeat. 
I much the same as you. I did like that show, but I, I was a Hillary Duff fan as a, as a young boy growing up. Um, what about favorite quotes? You know, you've, you've had some coaches, you would have been on teams. You mentioned Mel Marshall, you know, gave you some way, great words of wisdom. Do you have any quotes that have stuck with you that you, you know, you look back on? Um, yeah, my mum used to say when I was little, cause I was, when I was, I guess talking a long time ago when I was 10, I wasn't very, like I hadn't grown and a lot of my competitors were quite tall. So she always used to say to me, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but the size of the fight in the dog. And I think that's why I'm so competitive and just like, gun ho because I'm like I know I've got to get stuck in and that one's definitely stuck with me even though it's not necessarily kind of too apparent now I just think like the message and the work ethic behind it is something that I just kind of sort of stick with a little bit that is a great one and I, I had um, a great Australian open water swimmer Chelsea Gubecker on yesterday and she gave me that exact same one so <laughs> it's funny you say that that was that was her favorite as well now something I want to a game I want to play with you and I'm only uh, you know, doing this with you guys from the UK because I think it's it's a bit of fun and I want to test yeah. your knowledge of Aussie slang. Now, given that I know you listen to Hannah's, I'm going to change these up slightly because otherwise <laughs> you're going to know the answers. So <laughs> give me two seconds. I'm just going to grab up these other ones that I have <laughs> sitting on prepared the side. Early. Yeah, well, I had prepared some that were similar to Hannah's and then okay. I heard you say that obviously you uh listen to throw that. a spanner in there for yeah, you yeah well i just don't well you know i don't want to make things too easy for you mate otherwise what's the point of this game now so It'd even be more embarrassing if i just got them all wrong then <laughs> <laughs> would have just proved you didn't actually you started listening to it and you Last dropped five off minutes, so, in, yeah. <laughs> so here's the name of the game pretty simple these are aussie slang terminologies for something obviously and and you're going to tell me what it means i i've i've learned to put it in more of a sentence to make it make sense to almost lead you to the answer um but we'll see how we go so the first one is if i was cracking open a cold one what would i be doing opening a beer yeah 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 or for me whiskey but yeah just cracking open a can of alcohol yeah (laughs) It's all good. It's all good. Uh, if I was, if I, if I, I'll just put it this way. If I was buggered, what would I be? If you said to me, how are you? Knackered. Buggered. Tired. Yeah, knackered is the way. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Uh, if you asked me what I was having for dinner and I said just a few snags. Oh, don't know that one. On the barbecue. I hope you out. Oh, burgers. Sausages? Sausages, yeah. Sausages. Sausages, yeah. Just throwing on a few snags. Snags. I might use that over the summer. (laughs) Maybe nobody will know what you're saying. but (laughs) They'll be like, what? (laughs) (laughs) If I was was chucking a sickie tomorrow, what would I be doing? Taking the day off work. Yes, yes. Which I'm not. I am going to work tomorrow. I'm now (laughs) COVID-free. Have you had a COVID test? Just This is just straight out of left field. But the other day, because I've been having a cough, so I thought I better do the right thing. And I had the Uh COVID test and it was goddamn awful. Have have you had it? Believe it or not, yes. Not that. A couple of days ago, (laughs) wasn't. It's like a precaution, I guess, because we're back in the pool and in the environment. It's like, right. I had a bit of a sore throat and the doctor's mm. like, it's a new symptom. You're not allowed back to the pool. Yeah. And it, it was awful. <sighs> I was like self-administrated. And I, when that, like the swab and I was coughing and sneezing and I was thinking, thank gosh, no one can see me right now because I did not <laughs> look pretty. My eyes were streaming. It was, it was rough. 
<laughs> it was the same as you. I had a sore throat and I'd sort of put it down to like, I talk a lot, obviously, as you can uh -huh. tell, and I do a lot of interviews. So I was like, maybe I've just been talking too much, but I thought, no, I better do it. Cause I just started going back to coaching, man. That thing went so far up my nose. I thought they were trying to take out a piece of my brain. <laughs> like, what is happening? Where is it going? I just yeah. thought it was never going to end. Anyway, that's a side note. Maybe me so bad. I'm glad you went through that experience too. Um, <laughs> yeah. If I was wearing a pair of thongs, what would I be Flip wearing? Flip-flops. Yes, yes, yes. Knew that one. I know you guys are a bit better at that. If I was talking to Americans, I think they'd be throwing a little bit more about what a thong is. Um, and the last one, if I was driving and, and I'm talking to you on the phone, but it's hands-free, of course, and I said to you, I'm just pulling into the servo. What would I be doing? Service station? Yeah, perfect. Pulling yeah. off the road? Yeah, yeah, service station. Yeah. Killed it. Look at you go. You're a bit worried about that too because I, I, you know, took your left field there because you were ready Bring for the new ones. You were ready for the Hannah Miley ones. You're like, I've got this. <laughs> this guy doesn't even know. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, finally, listen, I, I want to talk to you about uh, what you think, you know, or what you want more more than what you think your legacy to be in the sport so when you know when coaches are talking about amy wilmot to their to their athletes you know how do you want to be remembered as an athlete and what do you think you know your legacy would be um i think it would be nice if people kind of said that i was a girl that worked hard was consistent um could kind of perform hopefully when I needed to perform and just never really gave up even if things weren't necessarily the easiest. That would be quite a nice legacy, I think, to kind of have. Well, I think definitely anybody that goes through your career will, will definitely see that. Um, and, and as I said, you know, what a perfect, especially 2008, even, even as I said, if, if you don't know your story and you do some research and you look through and then you see you know, how well you did in 2000, you just get a smile on your face for you. So definitely, I think, oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, no, it's, definitely, I think, you know, uh, that's the appreciation. Anybody who goes through your career should get that you're a fighter. You never gave up uh, and, and you kept pushing forward. I want to thank you very much for coming on for a chat. I know you're busy you're getting back into swimming. You've got the, the swim skills, the, the business there that you're getting stuck into. So um, I definitely appreciate you taking the time to come on. It's been an honor, privilege to go through your, you know, a remarkable career. You're a champion in and out of the pool. I know the listeners are going to get a lot from these stories. Uh, I certainly did. I enjoyed it. So I know others will as well. Uh, and finally, mate, thank you very much for coming on Off The Block Swimming Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Today's episode of Off The Block Swimming Podcast is proudly brought to you as always by Pro Swim Workouts. Again, if you're listening to us from over in Britain and you love today's chat with Amy, make sure you're joining us each and every Wednesday as we shine a light on Team GB swimmers past and present and get to share some of their awesome stories and highlights. On tomorrow's show, it is double trouble as two Australian age group stars of the pool come on in episodes 10 and 11 showcasing Queenslander Tommy Neal and Melbourne star Gabriella Peiniger. Do not miss these two future superstars of our sport tomorrow on the podcast. Until then, though, guys, be sure to check out our YouTube page for all the latest episodes. Like and subscribe, of course. Have a great day, and it's bye for now. I just wanna be with you.